Okay, <clears throat> we are now uh, on lesson number 12 in our study of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Of course, we are entitling this Where It All Begins, and we, we're really turning a corner today. Uh, we're going to introduce uh, chapter 2, verse 4 and following, and really another key point of transition in the text for us. Um, you'll notice in Genesis 2, if you want to go ahead and turn there, turn to Genesis chapter 2. You'll notice right out of the gate that there's a sort of a shift in the language. We're moving from the sort of the facts of creation in daily succession through creation's day one through six with the seventh day of rest. And of course, uh, we, we wrapped up that section last week when we talked about how God rested on the seventh day and what that means, what that means for us and some thinking around Sabbath in general. and um, So anyway, we, we now turn the corner to, to chapter 2, verse 4, and we really get into a much more expansive view of the creation of man and all that took place. And what we have here, though many would argue against this, what we have here is basically an amplification of creation day 6. Okay, So that's what we're going to be looking at. That's the that's the assumption that we're making uh, from an interpretive standpoint for this particular section, and we'll, of course, provide some support for that as we kind of get further into it. But you, you see here in the very beginning this introduction of uh, generations, this term generations. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, which runs all the way through chapter 4, this introduction of, of the generations of the heavens and the earth. It, it carries all the way through from chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4, this generations of the heavens and the earth, as it's, as it's called. And this really begins or introduces to us uh, a pattern, a, a new pattern for us uh, in the text, this formula of the generations. And just to give you some <clears throat> fly-by overview, you see this, of course, in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of heaven and earth. You see it again in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of generations of Adam, the book of the generations of Adam. In chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. Chapter 25, verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. Chapter 36, verses 1 and 9, you see these are the generations of Esau. And then chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. So we're introduced to a, a pattern here, a new formula in the text that's important to note. And really, this is a summary statement. It's a summary that introduces offspring, introduces a genealogical record more traditionally, especially in the subsequent uh, examples after this initial example we're looking at in chapter 2, verse 4. But you, you see that chapter 2, verse 4 is distinct. It's unique. And of course, it stands to reason as we looked at the first uh, chapter and beginning in verse 26, when you see the beginning of the, uh, the uh, creation of man, that the text itself highlights or amplifies the distinction of that point, that pinnacle point in creation. So you see a similar distinction here, uh, just textually, if you're just looking at the text itself, um, that, to, to, that indicates a, a uniqueness of this particular section. So it stands off, even though it's part of a, 
a pattern or a, a formula in the text of introducing generations, uh, or this term generations, or toledot, I think is how you pronounce it in Hebrew, um, you, you have a distinction in this particular generations narrative. Uh, in that, um, it, it, it's, it's a generations of the heavens and the earth, whereas the other generations are actually genealogical records of people, and you see this listing of names and, and you know, fathers and sons and so forth. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth. So it's, it's, it's distinct and it's different in that way. Um, it's, it's an emphasis not on multiple genealogical lines, but really it, it, it begins an emphasis upon the singular federal head of Adam. Adam as the representative and federal head of all of humanity. Because this begins to set up for us what is going to come in the subsequent chapter in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so the implications of what we see here in this particular generations of the heavens and the earth, and in particular the expansive account of the creation of Adam and Eve and their place in the garden and so forth and their purpose, um, you're going to see that this is an emphasis upon implications for all of humanity. So the generations of, of Noah, for example, start outlining individual sons succeeding uh, um, a progeny of the particular name that's mentioned at the beginning of the, the genealogy that's, that's in, introduced. This is federal headship. This is Adam and really, by representation, implications for all of humanity. Okay, so there's a distinction here again in that way. We see also here, and I'm just giving you some introductory some introductory ideas uh, for this section, we see a shift in this motif of blessing that you see all throughout chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, where the uh, six days or seven days of creation, six days of creation, seventh day of rest conclude. You see this emphasis on blessing, and blessing is there's a blessing that's issued by God three times in that section. This moves into a motif of cursing. We'll find a shift there in this key motif, and you'll see this, this idea of curse uh, being used three times throughout this whole generations section that begins here in chapter 2, verse 4. And this really is the first unit uh, of, of this generation, or this toledot, that is it's called. It runs from chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of the chapter in verse 25. So it takes you all the way through the end of chapter 2. Now, some would argue... Uh, not some, but many would argue that this represents a completely distinct and even different creation narrative. So you have Genesis chapter 1 as being one creation narrative, and then you have Genesis chapter 2 being a completely different creation narrative from a completely different source, and therein lies the reason for all the quote-unquote contradictions between the two creation narratives, the creation accounts. Uh, we, however, are not going to uh, assume that is uh, the, the truth and that is the, 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 the reality of, that's revealed in the text. We don't see these as, a different, as different versions or distinct versions of the creation account. We don't see contradiction. Um, what we see here in terms of content, just in terms of content alone, is we see, um, we see an elaboration, as I've said, of the details of creation of man and woman on day six. So there's, there's, the content is an elaboration or an expansive view of creation day six. And we see in terms of its purpose, 
we see that it provides an absolutely essential backdrop, an essential background uh, to the record of the fall that's going to come in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 reference back to Genesis chapter 2, okay? So in other words, we're being introduced to the generations of the heavens and the earth that are going to carry forward, and so this sets context for what's to come. Whereas Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 2, 3 establishes sort of the facts of creation as God created by fiat and declared that things would be, and so uh, this begins to introduce what happens next in, in, a, in a larger sort of context of man on earth as created in the image of God. So that, that kind of introduces this idea of purpose. Now, Alan Ross, who wrote the book Creation and Blessing, kind of highlights this this backdrop idea like this. He says the magnitude that sin and destruction can be fully understood only when the nature and purpose of humankind is understood. To know what God had invested in human life and what he had expected of it is to know what was lost in the fall. So again, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2 helps us understand more fully the impact, the significance of what happened in the fall. So it serves as, a, as, a, as an important backdrop to that, that next um, seminal event in human history. Um, it begins to ob- uh, answer probably what should be, I think, for most, it should be the most, one of the most obvious questions that follows this, this amazing, glorious, powerful account of God's creative work that we looked at in the six days of creation, seventh day of rest, which just preceded this section that we're entering into. And let's just kind of review for a second. We see in the creation narrative in chapter 1 through the first few verses of chapter 3 that God is imminent, He is sovereign, um, and He's very specific in His creative work. We see that God brings order out of chaos. We see that He brings light out of darkness, that He brings a fruitful habitation out of a barren wasteland. We see that God creates man and woman in his image and in his likeness in a most personal and intimate way with the blessing of fellowship and family and abundant provision. We see that what God creates, he declares as good, and by the end, he declares it as very good. So we have this verdict of goodness that's declared. Then we see that God concludes his creative labors with this day of rest, this day of of reflection upon the wonder and beauty and perfection of his creation. And really what we see by the end of the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, everything's in place. Everything's in order. Everything's beautiful and lovely. The habitation is perfect and fully sustaining of life on earth. You see this perfect created order. So, The reader, you and I, and anyone else that would have read this, would be looking at this and going, what happened? Right? I mean, that's the big question. Because what we know is that what we experience day to day has no resemblance, really, to this kind of imminent God involved in creation and and creating order out of chaos. What we experience is we experience all manner of chaos, don't we? We've talked about this. We experience chaos within us, and we experience chaos and disorder 
and wickedness and sin and bloodshed and hurt and pain and suffering all around us all the time. Now, it's not that our experience is completely absent or devoid of anything beautiful or lovely. That's obviously a gift of God's common grace and a reflection of what he accomplished in his original creation. But what is crystal clear to us is that things are vastly different than what we see in Genesis chapter 1 through the first few verses of chapter 3, excuse me, of chapter 2 in creation. So this begins to answer that question, what happened? Okay, what happened? So let's read the passage together. We're going to read verses 4 all the way down to the end of the chapter. And of course, we're not going to, we're not going to bite off all of these verses today. But it is a, a running narrative. So let's just kind of read it all the way through to set it in our minds as we begin to look at it a little more closely. In verse 4, chapter 2, it says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold is that the gold of that land is good. Bedlam, Bedlam. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Excuse me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we have introduced here this really elaborate, expansive account of creation day six with a lot going on, and so we're going to have to kind of do some work to kind of push our way through it. But the first question I want to put out there for you is, on the face of it, in reading the text, do you see what appear to be contradictions between this particular account of creation and Genesis chapter 1 that we looked at previously? Are there, are there contradictions between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? 
So it looks like things are out of order, right? I mean, you've got man being created out of order from the creation narrative and plants being created out of order. There's a sort of a jumbling of the order of creation here. Um, anything else that you guys notice? Obviously, there's no reference to days or morning and evening or anything like that. And there's obviously no account of, there's not as much detail of other elements of creation, you know, the stars and the heavenly hosts and separation of land and waters and all those kinds of things. That doesn't necessarily represent contradiction, but it certainly represents distinction in the two accounts. Well, this idea of there being contradiction is no small matter. Um, It's actually quite a pervasive issue in theological circles. In fact, uh, a source of tremendous debate and even even sort of, um, I would say, consternation and, and a little bit of uh, snarkiness in, in the arguments that are made um, from one side to the other. Uh, I read, I, I, I pulled an example of what I'm talking about here from a particular blog called, it's the, the title of the blog is God of Evolution. So you have this blog that's dedicated to a theistic evolution uh, position. So you have someone who is the editor of this blog and who is a, a primary contributor to it. Um, who also contributes to a lot of other uh, um, publications and so forth, uh, who would advocate theistic evolution, would advocate that, that God used evolution to bring all things into being. And just to give you an idea, and, and the tagline of this blog, it's God of evolution, and then the tagline is theology with attitude. It kind of gives you a hint of kind of the, the angle or the edge that he's probably going to be writing from. But listen to, this is in the about section, just I want to give you the context of, of, of what this blog is about. Um, it says that um, it's dedicated to the simple proposition that Christianity can be everything the Bible says it is, and evolution can be everything the evidence says it is, without the two coming into savage conflict. Though longing for ultimate unity in the church, God of evolution forcefully opposes those religious groups and individuals who teach that accepting evolution or reading Genesis any way other than literally makes you a second-rate compromising Christian. So the idea here, or the position of this particular writer, is that uh, those who would advocate for a literal interpretation of the creation record, uh, a a young earth creation account, six literal 24-hour days, and on and on, that their particular view toward those who would have a theistic evolutionary view or something other than a young earth, literal six-day creation, uh, that, that we would view them as compromised, less than, sort of, it's sort of like a, you know, our view is that they are second-rate, he says, second-rate Christians. And I would say that if that's the attitude that any of us would possess, it's, it's not a good attitude. It's not a godly, Christ-like attitude, and we should repent. The fact of the matter is, and what we've stated in this particular class routinely, is that if you would adopt something other than a literal six-day interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 through the first few verses of Genesis chapter 2, then you have to do some very unique and, and I think what you would consider to be difficult interpretive gymnastics with the text itself as well as with a lot of the rest of Scripture. 
So this is not an assault on an individual or a person who might hold to a theistic evolutionary position or something or some variant of that. It's just uh, it's just a statement of of fact about the nature of the text itself and and a consistency of interpretation of Scripture throughout. And so it's just really putting putting before anyone that would have a view like that kind of a, a sense of a challenge or maybe a question of how would you how would you really reconcile these things? I mean, there is a challenge here that, that, that stands before you. In the same way that there's a challenge that stands before anyone that would adopt a young earth view, I mean, you have to, you have to sort of be able to look at all the things that are being promoted or put forward from those in a old earth Christian community as well as a secular scientific community. And you have to be able to sort of provide some kind of answer. But as we've said all along, that our answers are going to be coming from a position of presuppositions, of preset determinations, ours being, a, 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 in summary, a supernaturalistic creation presupposition as opposed to a naturalistic creation or origins presupposition. Nevertheless, this is kind of the, the, the background or position of this particular writer in this particular blog. So I want to read to you a little bit from an article that he wrote called as different as morning and evening, Genesis 1 and 2 contradictions. So just to give you a summary or a snapshot of how this, this particular argument is put forward. And I'm just reading some excerpts here. Genesis contains not one, but two creation accounts. So there's the, the statement. They're, they're two different accounts. And if read entirely literally, they are completely contradictory and irreconcilable. So that's the, that's the thesis here. If Genesis 1 is nothing more than a historical narrative, then God made plants and trees appear across the land on the third day, Genesis 1, 11 to 13. He then made fish and birds concurrently on the fifth day, followed on the sixth day by land animals, and last of all, humans. All indications within this text are that men and women were made simultaneously. Quote, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, turn the page. The second creation story opens with an introduction, Genesis 2-4, that closely mirrors Genesis 1-1. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The verse in no way indicates that what follows is simply a more detailed look at creation from a different perspective, as young earth creationists claim. It says, this is the account. Moving on, an individual man the same Hebrew word used in 126, but it's now translated singularly rather than as mankind, is the first thing God is described as making in Genesis 2. And this creative act occurs explicitly at a time when no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, even though the plants and trees were supposed to have been made three days prior. Trees appear after this when God plants the Garden of Eden in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. This is the first major contradiction in the literalist view. Genesis 2.9 says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And after he made man, we haven't even gotten to woman yet. But Genesis 1.24-31 provides no hint that additional plants or trees were made on the sixth day. All that had already been said and done as it were. Skipping down to Genesis 2.18-19, God remarks that it's not good for man to be alone, and so he then, at that point, proceeds to form every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, even though these also were supposed to have already been made and on different days, not at the same time. 
And finally, after all the birds and beasts are named, sorry, no fish in this creation account, God gets around to making woman. She's not named Eve till after the fall. Unlike Genesis 1, Genesis 2 contains no mention of days, mornings, or evenings that separate out the various creative periods. And as you can surely see, the order of the two is completely different. Genesis 1, plants and trees, fish and birds, land animals, men and women. Genesis 2, man, trees, land animals, and birds, and then woman. Now, here's some conclusions. The young earth creationist interpretation would instead make the story as follows. Number one, God knows Adam needs a wife, and that's something he has yet to, yet to make. That's from verse 18 of chapter 2. Number two, instead of making the wife God knows is missing from creation, he brings before Adam a whole bunch of other things he's already made, perhaps just to show off. So you get the kind of the snarkiness here. Number three, Adam politely explains that he is not interested in his wife being an ostrich or a buffalo. And for, number four, and so, verse 21 being clearly tied to verse 20 by the conjunction so, God finally makes the thing he apparently knew needed to be made way back in verse 18. So you get how there's like this edge to the writing here to sort of characterize an interpretive position that's, that's different. He goes on to say, um, um, he says, a, a recent blog post by Fred Clark so wonderfully points out, the literalist's main problem is that they are trying to harmonize two accounts that weren't meant to be harmonized. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell two different and separate stories which contain very different but equally important and true teachings about God, humanity, and the relationship between the two. The danger in young earth creationists' modern efforts to puree the two narratives into one is that they risk distorting these lessons such that the real eternal value intended by the original authors and ultimately by God is lost. So they're desiring to have you know, the meaning of Scripture come forward. They're just adopting a completely different interpretive perspective. So here he says, I believe that there is truth in the first two chapters of Genesis that goes far beyond the superficial questions of the order in which life appeared and the number of days it took God to make everything. Now, catch that, guys. He says, I believe that there is truth in the first two chapters of Genesis that goes far beyond the superficial questions, superficial questions, of the order in which life appeared and the number of days it took God to make everything. Now, I have a question for you guys. As we went through and read the first chapter through the first few verses of chapter 2, the, the creation narrative in six days, six literal days, does it read as though those facts or details are superficial or unimportant? I mean, I, we've, we've talked about this over and over again. The text makes particular emphasis upon these points over and over again. You have to look at that and stand back and with one big sweep of a pen or a keystroke on a keyboard say, those are superficial details. Because the text itself does not yield up a conclusion that these are superficial details. It's very explicit and repetitious and, and, and points directly to specific things that would indicate things like evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. I mean, very specific details that would indicate uh, time and sequence and order and that kind of thing. So, 
He says, in my view, these two snippets of ancient literature, these two snippets of ancient literature contain the essence of God's reason for making mankind and the relationship he desires with every man and woman who now lives. And then he says, to me, this is the truth that is beautiful and irreplaceable, life-changing even. To me, this is truth that is much too important and too precious to risk cheapening by insisting a sacred myth be read literally or to risk diluting by harmonizing the Bible's many disparate voices into meaninglessness. So just to give you guys an idea that when we talk about uh, discounting the first two chapters of Genesis as literal, now you have someone, and this is what everyone would have to do in order to draw meaning from it, you have to basically read into the text a meaning that you then pull out from it. And what we are compelled to do is to try and use agreed upon, adopted methods of biblical interpretation using the language itself, using historical context, using near context, using larger biblical context of the totality of scripture and say, what does it mean by what it says? Not what meanings to me do I want to pull from it that I think would be special and unique and kind of alleviate me from getting mired down into the meaningless trivia of dates and times and and specifics that couldn't possibly be true because of the evidence, the factual, indisputable, irrefutable evidence that is coming to us from the scientific community. There's your presupposition. That the scientific community and everything that's being put forward from it about how things came to be is authoritative over the scripture. Do you see how that plays out? It has to play out in the philosophical underpinnings of anyone, even those who would, who would want to advocate a Christian worldview. Uh, it, it, has to, it has to start with some conclusion about, about how things are um, before even a conclusion is drawn. So, before we get into the text and really start dealing with the specifics of it, I want to take a few minutes today to just talk about why the Bible is reliable and trustworthy and authoritative. Um, When I was uh, considering a seminary and ministry uh, track for career years ago, um, I attended Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth for a couple of semesters. And my first semester there, I'll never forget, um, I had an Old Testament survey class and I, it, was, it was a fairly large class, probably, um, I don't know exactly how many, but it was, it was taught in one of these sort of teaching theaters. You know, you're in a theater and the chairs go up, the individual sort of theater-style seats, actually, that kind of fold down. And so I don't know, I don't remember the details. I don't know if I got there late and I had to go sit on the front row or if I was so eager to learn that I sat on the front row. I just remember sitting on the front row. And, um, and actually, I think, again, I'm... I'm, I'm I can't remember the specific details. I don't know if, if this gentleman came in and sat down next to me after I was already seated or if I came in and sat down next to him. Nevertheless, I ended up on the front row, seated next to a very large man, beefy, strong man, um, football player type, you know, man. And um, 
his first year in seminary, first, one of his first classes to take, and we were kind of all in the same boat. So we ended up kind of uh, striking up a conversation. We ended up kind of hanging out and getting to know each other. Um, we did a few ministry events together. We kind of got to know each other a little bit. And this man was massive. Turns out he was from South Central Los Angeles, uh, kind of grew up in a gang violence environment, became a believer uh, while playing college football, got in- injured uh, while he was playing college football, um, felt called to ministry, ended up going to ministry. His name's Vody Bauckham. I don't know if you ever heard of, you heard of Vody Bauckham. Anyway, he's, he's, um, he's a really gifted um, teacher and preacher of God's word. And he, uh, some years ago, I don't know, I told you that backstory just because I have fond memories of this guy. One of the biggest, strongest looking guys I ever knew at that time with the sweetest, most gentle, God-loving spirit you'd ever meet. Just really compelling uh, person to, to get to know. But anyway, um, he, he, he kind of did this whole presentation on why he believes the Bible. So I'm stealing from Vody. I guess what I'm saying is I'm giving credit to Vody because I'm stealing this from him. But it's, it's just really a good synopsis, uh, primarily of Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, which says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this great passage of scripture from Peter about the authority of scripture, the uniqueness and authority of scripture. Um, and he even identifies himself as an eyewitness of the majestic glory and, and, and sort of brings that, that personal apostolic authority to this particular passage in a, in a significant way. So here's what Vody says as a summary statement about why he believes the Bible that's drawn from this particular passage. He says, it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of other eyewitnesses, and they report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies, and they claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. So let me break some of this down for us. Again, just to bolster our, our, our sense of confidence and assurance in the authority of Scripture. So much could be said on this. You could do a whole series on the doctrine of Scripture. But I just want to give you some highlights as we kind of enter into this passage where much disagreement and consternation over, over is it mythical, is it literal, how are we supposed to view this? It really centers in this transition from chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and then chapter 2, verse 4 and following. So, he says it's a reliable collection of historical documents. So there are 66 volumes. Again, this is a little Bible lesson for us. 66 volumes, or we would call them books of the Bible. These volumes of 66 were written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. They were written in three different languages, mainly Hebrew and Greek with a little bit of Aramaic. 
They were written by over 40 authors from multiple walks of life. There were kings, generals, fishermen, tax collectors, and doctors, to name a few. There are 66 volumes covering hundreds of various subjects written over a period of 1,500 years. And this is just one individual. And this is not, in other words, this is not just one individual making a claim. Okay? So the, the, the great diversity of, of authorship and background, geographic location, 1,500-year time, or 1,500-year time period, reliable collection of historical documents that were written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. This is, comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. There were over 301 eyewitnesses to the resurrection still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. This means that the gospel message was falsifiable. The veracity of it could be legitimately tested by eyewitnesses. So just taking the gospel account itself and the, the letter to the Corinthians in particular, there were over 300 witnesses to the resurrection. There have been over 25,000 archaeological digs related directly to the subject matter of the Bible, and not one of them has contradicted what we find in the Bible. In fact, the overwhelming majority have confirmed what the Bible says. And what about the argument that says the Bible is not reliable because it has been translated so many times? So you have the argument that says, well, there's no possible way it could have maintained its integrity because it's been translated so many different times over the, over the centuries. Um, Vodi would say that the people who make this claim are either ignorant or evil or both. The translations that the translations um, don't come from the um, the translations don't come from the most recent translation. They go to the earliest manuscripts. So, what about the reliability of the manuscripts themselves? Well, listen to this: the earliest dated New Testament manuscripts we have go back to 120 A.D., within a couple of decades of the completion of the New Testament. 120 A.D. By comparison, we have over, or to, go, to continue on, we have over 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts available today. By comparison to other ancient writings, if you look at Aristotle's Poetics, we have less than a dozen manuscripts, and the earliest one we can go back to is dated over 1,000 years after its original writing. So New Testament, 120 years A.D., and we have over 6,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts compared to Aristotle's Poetics of only less than a dozen manuscripts, and the earliest ones dated a thousand years after the original. Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have less than a dozen manuscripts, and three earliest, uh, and, and the earliest one is over a thousand years after the original writing. Homer's Iliad, we have a few hundred manuscripts, but the earliest one is dated 2,100 years after the original. So all these other ancient writings, there's, again, there's no comparison to the manuscript evidence that we have. And then they also, uh, the writers report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Isaiah 53, written over 700 years before Jesus is born and foretold specific events about his birth and that he would be the suffering servant. Psalm 22, written over 1,000 years before Jesus was born by a man who had never witnessed a crucifixion, providing explicit detail about Jesus' death on the cross the title of the psalm, My God, My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me, is what Jesus quoted on the cross to point his first century hearers to this prophetic psalm. And finally, they claimed that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. So you're left with this, this question to answer, do you believe the scriptures or don't you? Will you accept them as truth or won't you? Now, what we could say is if we say, of course, we believe the scriptures to be true and authoritative, 
And just as this gentleman who wrote this blog post says, I, I want the truth, what God said and what he meant by what he said to come out as well. But the challenge, again, when you think of Peter himself, who wrote that section on the inspiration of Scripture that I just read earlier, we've quoted passages from Peter and his reference to the authority that he has as a witness, an eyewitness of the the work and glory and majesty of Christ himself. We have quoted passages from Jesus verifying and validating the Genesis record numerous times. So my point in all this, guys, is that when we come to the text of Scripture, it, it all comes down to what do you believe about the authority and inspiration of the text as we have it, not what does science say and what does Scripture say or what do, what do I think makes the most sense and how do I reconcile them. Our job and our focus has to be upon understanding what the text of Scripture says and then yielding to it as authoritative. So as we look at this passage of Scripture in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, and we begin to look at this account of the generations of the heavens and the earth, what we're going to see is we're going to see the provision and the purpose of God in creating man so that when we move into Genesis chapter 3 and we see the dramatic fall, it all makes sense. We, we answer the question, what on earth happened? by understanding what God had done in creating man and providing for him and placing him in the garden. But we have to begin with a trust in the veracity and the reliability and the authority of the text of Scripture itself. Any questions or comments before we close in prayer?